0: don't really need to overthink this.
1: Don't give up on it. We should continue to use it.
0: If you're not in that ballpark, then you're gonna to have
2: to move to an invasive mechanical ventilatory strategy. We're trying to prevent atelectasis and dependent edema.
3: Not give up on the elderly with COVID. We are all in this together against this disease. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you're joining us for this podcast. We are recording this here at the end of June, 2020. And as you've listened to some recent podcasts, we've diverted our attention a little bit away from COVID to some other critical care topics. Last, we talked about the diastolic shock index. Well, we're gonna circle back and bring an update as it stands now to the treatment of COVID-19 here at the end of June. And we're gonna touch on some specific things with respiratory support, mechanical ventilation, along with some proning, paralysis, And what's the literature currently on additional medications and therapy for the treatment of patients with COVID-19? But before getting to our education, I have to bring in my amazing co-hosts here, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Peter, I'm going to start with you. How are things at the end of June here
0: for you? So at the end of June, we're having a small bump, but... You're nowhere near the 175 plus patients we had before. We're less than 12 in our hospital and only two of those are in the ICU. And that's in regards to COVID patients. There's a lot more sick and walking that aren't being admitted anymore that are home. So we're far better off, particularly compared to the rest of the country.
3: Definitely good news. And as we're recording this, certainly there are many states That are seeing a rise in numbers. One of those is California, where you're at, Rob. How are things for you?
1: Yeah, we are steady. We're about the same. I suppose we in the Bay Area have a very slight decline, although the numbers are basically about the same. It's really Southern California that's getting slammed. Our colleagues in Los Angeles and South have been hit pretty hard. They're having a really bad surge there. And so, I've got to keep them in mind.
3: Absolutely. And here in the Northeast, I think things have settled down a little bit. I can certainly say for Baltimore region and the state of Maryland, where I'm practicing, we've had a steady decline in our numbers in the positivity rate for testing in the number of patients admitted to the hospital along with the ICU. But we are anxiously awaiting and watching the numbers very carefully to see if and when they start to tick back up. Are things much different just north of here, John, in Philly?
2: No, I'd have to say it sounds about right. We've contracted down at each of our hospitals to one COVID ICU, and that's nice to see. The patients that are there are all still recovering with occasional admissions, and then certainly our patients on ECMO are still recovering, but we've been fortunate to have about 60% survival so far on our VV ECMO for COVID patients and for our really sick patients. So we're doing okay, I think. Just hoping it stays that way.
3: Excellent. Well, certainly we want to take a moment to recognize all of you, especially in those areas, not only in the United States, but across the world that are seeing a resurgence in COVID cases. We continue to stand with you, and we are all in this together against this disease. Well, with that, I'm going to turn things over to Rob for this podcast to take us through this discussion. Rob, take it away.
1: Yeah. So thanks, Mike. So we wanted to review mechanical ventilation in the COVID era, and there's just been a ton of articles. There've been over 40,000 publications about COVID since the pandemic started. And so it's difficult to sift through all this information. So we want to try and condense some of that information and attack and look at that specific topic about mechanical ventilation in the COVID era. And there are going to be some key messages that we're going to go through. The first is that you should really continue to use non-invasive ventilation. The second message that we're going to talk about is COVID ventilation in terms of your intubated patient and comparing and contrasting your plan for ventilation in COVID patients as it compares to ARDS patients. And we're going to talk about some measures to improve hypoxia. And then we're also going to go relatively deep into proning. And then we're going to finish up with what we call the COVID ICU cocktail. In other words, a group of drugs or therapeutic regimens that should be considered in any critically ill patient with COVID. So let's go ahead and dive into the non-invasive ventilation in COVID patients. Mike, can you tell us what should we be doing with these patients now?
3: Absolutely, Rob. And your first key message is continue to consider non-invasive modes of respiratory support. And just to level set really quick here, and it's something that we've talked about in prior podcasts, where initially in the COVID pandemic, especially in the U.S., there was a movement towards earlier intubation may be considered not using non-invasive modes of respiratory support like we would for acute COPD or acute CHF for fear of aerosolization. Now, in terms of those non-invasive modes, remember we've got continuous positive airway pressure, which is the application of PEEP, so that's CPAP. Recall we have BiPAP, and that has two components, an IPAP, or the inspiratory positive airway pressure, and an EPAP the expiratory positive airway pressure, which essentially is your PEEP, and this works very well for patients who present with acute COPD and acute CHF exacerbations. In addition, we also kind of group high flow nasal cannula in there with respect to non-invasive modes of respiratory support. That does really well for patients who have primarily hypoxemia, and rather than set IPAP or EPAP in contrast to BiPAP, you're really setting the FiO2 you want along with the flow and the humidification or the temperature of that delivered O2. In general, we've used high flow for pediatric patients, those perhaps that have altered mental status and then sometimes palliative care measures. Now, in terms of how do we make that work? In the COVID patient, it's not necessarily any different in terms of the application of BiPAP or high flow nasal cannula. You're going to go ahead and apply that if you're using BiPAP, then you're going to set your IPAP, you're going to set your EPAP, and then depending on the degree of respiratory distress, many have used some type of sedative medication. And a favorite of many is the utilization of ketamine to facilitate patients when they're receiving either BiPAP, CPAP, not really much so for high flow nasal cannula. But depending on where you work, depending on your practice and availability of resources, you can consider the use of these medications. And perhaps if you don't have ketamine, an analgesic may be beneficial in helping patients adjust to these non-invasive methods of respiratory support. But as Rob said, in the COVID patient, we've returned more so to using these non-invasive methods and that's often either high flow nasal cannula or in some cases, BiPAP. So still using it in fact we have been trialing a method to deliver non-invasive positive pressure and that is through the use of a head tent or a helmet to see if patients tolerate that a little bit better than the face mask that we're accustomed to using now we've talked about on prior podcasts and we want to continue to emphasize using non-invasive methods in patients with covid as best possible we want to place those patients in negative pressure rooms Certainly, staff going in to care for those patients should have full PPE, and that may be N95s, covered by a surgical mask and a face shield. That could be the utilization of paper hoods. You still want to apply it safely and protect and ensure your staff are protected. But using these modes of non-invasive respiratory support, still we want to be considering. In patients with COVID-19. Now the literature, perhaps there's a little bit of a signal and it favors the utilization of high flow nasal cannula, primarily because these patients are hypoxemic and not necessarily having problems with ventilation. So we've used a little bit more high flow than BiPAP. And in terms of how to set high flow nasal cannula, you can go all the way up to 40, 50, 60 liters per minute. In that COVID patient using high flow nasal cannula, but really kind of maxing that out around 20 to 30 liters per minute. If you notice you need higher flow rates, if you notice that you're dialing up the FiO2, it's probably at that point that you're going to need to move over to initiation and mechanical ventilation. But key message, continue to think about non-invasive ventilation for patients who are coming in hypoxemic. You're not ready to necessarily intubate them, consider high-flow nasal cannula, and perhaps BiPAP in a negative pressure room, Staff appropriately done with PPE, and then in some cases consider the use of a sedative such as low-dose ketamine to facilitate patient's tolerance of this therapy.
1: That's great. Wonderful summary about non-invasive ventilation in COVID. Again, don't give up on it. We should continue to use it. And also remember that A lot of the patients that we're seeing that you may suspect COVID in truly turn out to be COPD or or CHF, your standard other reasons to use non-invasive ventilation. So, again, stick with it. Perhaps use lower pressures if you're going to use BiPAP and perhaps consider high flow over BiPAP since it's primarily a problem with oxygenation. Okay, Peter, what about the intubated patient with COVID, what should we do with them? And and how does it compare to, let's say, ARDS?
0: So that's great. It's a great intro from Mike in regards to non-invasive, because if you're utilizing non-invasive and you're not reaching your oxygenation goals, and again, those goals can be as low as 88% and as high as 92%. If you're not In that ballpark, then you're going to have to move to an invasive mechanical ventilatory strategy. So oxygenation is really going to be your trigger. And I think we've emphasized that here for everybody. The other thing is, is as we're peri-RSI, right? When we're getting ready to go full on with positive pressure ventilation in an invasive means, we want to make sure that we're not going to create a cardiovascular collapse. So again you look for triggers and things that might make you particularly nervous. And so shock index. So again, you've heard it here before, but for this systolic blood pressure that is substantially lower than my heart rate should make you nervous. And in those patients, we might want to do a little bit more resuscitation with either fluids or even vasopressors to really ameliorate that cardiovascular compromise. And what you're trying to do is really create a reserve, if you will, by bolstering blood pressure and lowering heart rate through either fluid boluses or with the use of vasopressor agents. But again, be conscious that if you're gonna go full on with invasive mechanical ventilation, the risk for cardiovascular collapse in someone whose tank is low is a risky proposition and could lead to code states. So be careful for that. We want to be careful also with creating further lung injury. So we're moving away from cardiovascular. We're now moving into lung parenchymal injury. And remember that we really want to follow our plateau pressures and not use exceedingly high plateau pressures. In fact, for COVID, these lungs tend to be less stiff, not more stiff, but less stiff than ARDS patients. So really maintaining plateau pressures less than 30 centimeters is critical. And then on the lower end of things, a lower caution is ventilation and elimination of CO2. And this patient population with COVID, that tends not to be a problem. So I think if we kind of set our priorities number one, we want to concern ourselves with oxygenation. Number two, making sure we steer clear of cardiovascular compromise or collapse. Number three is avoid further lung injury with plateau pressure maintenance less than 30. And then the ventilation will typically take care of itself. So we don't have to focus too much on that. When we focus on ARDS in particular and the COVID model, how it sort of looks. Rob has used a great model looking at the open lung model where the bottom line really looks at the pressure that's generated before volume flows in. And you'll see the marker for LIP, which is the lower inflection point. And that lower inflection point is really the critical minimal pressure that begins alveolar recruitment. And once you hit that alveolar recruitment, you're going to see a flow increase in volume. And that flow increase is going to go all the way up to the UIP or the upper inflection point. And that's the pressure where there's regional over of lungs. And the way I want you to think about this is when you hit that higher inflection point, it creates de-recruitment of the lungs. So that alveolar distention de-recruits the alveolus and creates a bigger problem for us. And so I think that this model helps us understand ARDS and to a fair degree, COVID as well. When we start looking at the chest x-rays that are associated with COVID, classically, this is multi lobar distribution, but it tends to look, instead of as dense as ARDS with thick white, we see more fluffiness to this and diffuse but fluffy in its nature. So less dense white and more gray, if you will. And that's associated with more severe hypoxia. The lungs in the COVID patient tend not to be as stiff as the ARDS patients. Maybe may be a little bit more along the lines of congestive heart failure. And true to form with CHF, There's not as much of a challenge with CO2 elimination and having to worry about what our rates are set at. And again, there tends to be not so much concern for generation with high plateau pressures and further injury of the lung if we remain clever with our PEEP. And so we don't really need to overthink this because they're COVID patients. You can stick with the mode that you're most comfortable with and classically either pressure controlled or my favorite, which is volume control for these patients. And then really, really focus on the settings and look at your plateau settings. So the tidal volumes should be 6 cc's to 8 cc's at the max, not greater than 8 cc's though. So the numbers you're looking at are in the 400 to 500 range. And what's going to really trigger this is not the weight of your patient, but really it's the height of your patient. That's what functions more into our ideal body weight calculations. And so I want to say five years ago, We had a podcast where I spoke about this and I had handed out tape measures to all of our respiratory therapists so they could be accurate in measuring ideal body weights and therefore measurements for the tidal volumes. We tend to consistently overestimate body weights, not just in the emergency department, but in the critical care setting as well. And then PEEP, we tend to use higher levels of PEEP for hypoxemia and ARDS in those people with elevated BMI. And since COVID really does have a predilection for severity of disease in those patients with elevated BMI, we typically start with a higher PEEP, probably start at 10 and then go up. But again, follow your plateau pressures. You really don't want to be greater than 30. And we tend to use lower PEEPs in covid When we compare that with an ARDS patient, although they share similar characteristics, shade on the side of lower PEEP if you can. When we start talking about tailored PEEP, again, if it's diffuse disease, then you're going to go stepwise incremental so that you can reach your goals for oxygen saturations. And again, anywhere 88 to 94%. You don't really need to go higher than 94%. And when it's symmetrical disease, you can kind of do this with abandon. By abandon, I mean you have to have less concern. If you're struck with COVID positive patient, but it looks like a unilateral disease and socked in consolidated lung, you need to be really, really careful with your PEEP use there. You're not suddenly going to jack open that area of the lung without affecting the other side of the lung and de-recruiting healthy alveolar units. So, be cautious with that. And again, lower PEEP use if you're going with a a unilateral disease that's socked-in lobe, because whatever PEEP you're adding to the system is being seen throughout that lung, not just that diseased portion. So, be very, very careful with that. Probably use lower PEEP in those cases. When we talk about other settings, when we look at rate, typically there's no need for really crazy high rates. You know, the lower your tidal volume, though, if you're closer to six cc's, you're going to use respiratory rates in the 20 range or 20 plus. If you're using eight cc's, and again, that's ideal body weight, then you're going to be closer to 14 to 16 to 18 respiratory rate. When we start saying we're dialing in our oxygen, these are not the patients that we're going to dial up and say, I want a saturation goal of 100%. Again, you know, less oxygen is better in these cases. We have to be careful, though, because these patients can turn on a dime and require alterations both in PEEP and FiO2. So it can't be, these are the settings and I'm walking away for 12 hours. That could be ruinous in these COVID patients. But you do want to avoid superoxia, the 100-plus realm. Start low and titrate up. And again, SAT goals, 92 to 96% are, are fine. Probably in my shop, we'll go as low as 88% in a comfortable manner, but following very, very closely. Again, checking on this exceedingly frequently and having the alarm set where somebody is going to respond. So i turn this over now so we can hear a little bit about intubation and then maybe some proning by John.
2: Well, thanks, Peter. You know, I think one of the more interesting areas of development in the treatment of COVID-19 has been in the dynamic use of proning. Certainly, I think we're all pretty familiar with the use of proning in severe ARDS. So PF ratio less than 150 in the patient who has bilateral patchy infiltrates has in traditional ARDS in the sense where there's significant dependent alveolar edema, atelectasis. Turning a patient prone, we found has significantly improved oxygenation and in fact has improved mortality, as we found in 2013 in the Proceva trial. And certainly by turning the patient over, what we ultimately do is move that extravascular lung water out and so that the larger lung fields can perfuse and ultimately deliver oxygen to the rest of the body, which this improves our VQ mismatch and ultimately improves airflow as well, as well as ventilation. But Certainly, the use and the timing of proning is maybe a little bit more variable depending on where you work. Now, I know at my institution and I think at many others, the use of prone positioning is instituted fairly early. So we're not waiting until that PF ratio gets super low, even something once we've optimized our PEEP as well as few other adjuncts like paralytics if that patient still isn't doing well and their pf ratio is less than 100 um, certainly turning them over for a period of time often is very helpful and we'll do this upstairs in the ICU and the duration is a little bit different at each institution i think the original perm position trials used somewhere around 16 hours certainly some people are trying a little bit shorter and this is a really resource intensive procedure so may not be the best if you're ICU isn't 100% staffed all the time to be turning people in the middle of the night. So a 10 or 12 hour, 14 hour prone positioning trial may be more beneficial. Now, certainly I can say for us, we've actually been allowing patients to stay prone for even longer periods of time, up to 24 to 48 hours intervals, and certainly we're checking for major things like skin breakdown, tubes. Your patients really need to be padded in their pressure points. Skin care is vital in patients who are turned on their belly, but certainly we are seeing a lot of improvement even in COVID ARDS, the COVID-related ARS, just like with influenza and everything else. Now, you know, I think that for me, it's really important to determine if your patient's a responder. And, and this is something, so once the patient gets turned onto their belly, I'm looking for in serial blood gases and our saturations and FiO2 requirement, I'm looking for those things to change pretty quickly. Hopefully within the first 30 minutes or an hour, we're seeing trends of improvement. And that's important and it's helpful in our intubated patients, but one of the Even more interesting things are, and I have to admit, I was awfully skeptical of this when it was first reported, is the idea of proning the non-intubated patient or self-proning in patients who present to the emergency department. And ultimately, the principles and the ideas, concepts are all the same for the intubated patient. But ultimately, the idea here is that we're trying to prevent atelectasis and dependent edema. Certainly, there are some small studies in COVID-19 patients that are showing some promise that there's some signal of benefit in the research world. So there's modest improvements in oxygenation, but certainly there are some caveats in terms of patients being able to tolerate it for a period of time. And there is a chance that maybe this would decrease intubation rates if patients can routinely do this on a regular basis. You know, my initial skepticism and fear was that by doing this, we were delaying intubation. But so far, it's been nice to see, we haven't seen too many reports of that just yet, but certainly something we'll have to keep a watch out for. I think at the end of the day, asking your severely hypoxic patient who you're trying to avoid intubation to participate in a trial of self-perning is pretty reasonable and fairly low risk overall as of June of 2019 from what we know from the literature and other reports. So I guess maybe it might be worthwhile to talk for just a couple minutes on how to do this. Certainly, it's not something we usually do in the emergency department, and nurses might not be familiar with it, as well as house staff or advanced practice providers. And if the patient's gonna be with you for a period of time, even if it's just for a couple of hours, it's not a bad idea rather than escalating straight to intubation if you're trying to preserve that patient off invasive mechanical ventilation to ask them to self-prone. So there's a couple of key things I think are important to remember whenever you're asking a patient to turn on a belly because this is not a natural position for most patients who come into the hospital. And simple things like removing the EKG leads on their chest to obviously avoid creating any pressure sites. Giving padding, and this can be as simple as a rolled up blanket or extra pillow, under maybe the curvature of certain areas like the hips or under the ankles. Certainly being careful about the patient's neck positioning. Making sure all the oxygen tubing that you're using so that you're having most things on one side of the bed. So IV tubing, oxygen connections should all be on one side. And the idea would be that the patient can rotate towards the tubing, so that way it's not lying underneath of them and again getting tangled or perhaps even disconnected. You really want to watch these patients for the first 30 minutes and keep an eye on their saturations. And this is why it's important to have a team huddle prior to getting your patient to do this. You want to give the nurses in particular direction about what are some signs that the patient is failing. And those signs can be something like increased heart rate, tachycardia rate greater than 120, increased respiratory rate, or worsening to tachypnea, or saturations that remain less than 88% for a short period of time. If those aren't improving, you might need to have the patient turn back over and considering them a failed trial. Now, patients can do this for any a cycle anywhere ranging from two to four hours as long as they're comfortable. And again, after you turn them over and they want to turn back over to a supine position, obviously just doing a good thorough skin check is always important to identify areas at risk for pressure. Now, That's kind of the procedure of doing the self pruning but certainly want to think about patients who this might not be a good idea in. So things that I kind of think twice about are patients with chronic or underlying lung disease, certainly patients with interstitial lung disease or even cardiac cause of CHF might not be the best patient to do this in. Certainly uh, drains in tubes. So if they had a pneumothorax, chest tubes, you're probably gonna wanna avoid this. Any sort of spine issues, altered mental status, patients cannot participate in the proning, hemodynamic instability, certainly you wanna be careful about. Pregnancy, because the obviously anatomy concerns, morbid obesity as well. All of these things might, push you away from trialing a prone positioning, but certainly you can call for help. I think upstairs in our ICU, we're still continuing what our emergency departments are doing in self-proning. This is on patients with pretty high amounts of high flow nasal cannula. We're not yet doing it with BiPAP just because it can get disconnected pretty easily, but this has been a pretty exciting for me and something that I've incorporated in my practice. While I was a little bit skeptical. Anecdotally, I've been pretty impressed with the outcome so far of the patients I've taken care of. So that's the self-proning and the proning So maybe we should move along to maybe other adjunctive treatments for COVID-19 ARDS.
0: You know, if you're going to prone an intubated patient, one of the things that you're going to have to embrace is neuromuscular blockade. So that patient's going to be paralyzed. This isn't somebody who's going to have a light dose of fentanyl and tolerate proning for 16 to 18 hours at a time. That's not going to work. So if you're going to commit to paralysis and neuromuscular blockade, you really are going to have to monitor these patients very closely with nerve stimulators and train of four and that kind of thing. So it's the same indications for paralysis as we have in ARDS. If the patient is going to be prone, if you're worried or having difficulty with patient-ventilator synchrony, right, the patient's fighting the ventilator, and as a result, either too high pressures or hypoxemia, and sedation is not working, you may need to paralyze those patients. Just de novo, severe hypoxia, and you're going to trial proning. That would be an indication And then we really are going to need some sort of monitoring because you want the patients as light as possible but still not breathing over the vent. And again, any consideration for proning, you're going to paralyze that patient. One of the other things that you might need to consider, depending on your facility and what's available to you, are inhaled agents for those patients with severe refractory hypoxemia. So if you're proning and you're not reaching your goals, if you have used your ideal PEEP and you're not reaching your goal, then you may think about these inhaled agents. And these are inhaled through the ventilator or even via high flow. And the agents typically are going to be nitric oxide or epoprostenol. And those agents are used in pulmonary hypertension frequently, but can be also used in these patients. They're pulmonary artery vasodilators, and they will improve VQ mismatch. And so that's the goal. Now, if you're gonna use these through the ventilator and through high flow nasal cannula, there is a risk for the tubing to be clogged with these agents. So we're going to have to have extra vigilance if you're going to utilize these agents. And so that means there's going to be extra lines running around and more risk for error. So you're going to really have to have a nursing staff who's tuned into it and can follow this. The next step, though, is going to be one that I'm going to let Mike go over because he and the folk at University of Maryland are really embracing ECMO. And so, Mike, you want to tell us a little bit about ECMO?
3: Sure. Well, we're still gaining experience across the U.S. and across the globe with using ECMO for COVID-19 patients. It is something that we do a lot of at the University of Maryland. I think last count, we were probably the facility with the third most common ECMO use on the Northeast or on the East Coast. So we do about 150 to 160 patients or cases of ECMO each year. Now I can say early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, when we started to get cases, a lot of our cases were transfers in from our outlying facilities within the University of Maryland medical system. And these patients were receiving VV ECMO. We do in our ED have an ECPR program that in essence kind of got shut down at the start of this pandemic. And we've now, as we've gotten a lot more experience, begun to offer it potentially to a few patients, but still very, very restricted in terms of indications. At any one time, we typically have about 19 to 20 patients with COVID-19 in the medical center receiving ECMO. And I think the best resource really that we'd wanna direct everyone to is that of the ELSO. So it's the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization. They do a great job in culminating all sorts of statistics. And in essence they have are producing a living document that they regularly update with new information on ECMO as it pertains to COVID-19 new literature and their last update it's not that long of a read and we'll link to it in our handout but it really talks about the use of ECMO for COVID-19 and really this needs to be a local resource decision a hospital decision if you're not doing ECMO and weren't doing it pre-COVID they are not recommending now is the time you initiate an ECMO program. This is something for experienced centers who are doing it and really taking into account what is the state of the pandemic in your region, in your locality, and what are your resources? Are you at a place where you can handle things? Capacity exists. You're able to maintain your patient selection and initiate VV ECMO versus are you in a state where your resources are simply overwhelmed and you're really not gonna offer ECMO to patients regardless of how sick they are because you just don't have the staff, the devices, the equipment to safely carry out ECMO. So once again, they've got a a great reference in terms of offering indications with relative contraindications, absolute contraindications in their most recent updated document. But once again, this is very resource intensive kind of at this point in time restricted to places that had already have experienced ECMO centers. Patients primarily are going on VV ECMO because we're supporting patients' lungs in the setting of COVID-19. And then occasionally patients are extending on or going on to VA ECMO for full cardiopulmonary support. So more references from ELSO, I think that's probably about it in terms of ECMO, just thinking about it really as a salvage therapy and in terms of even creating tighter indications or who are you going to offer it to. In general right now, it tends to be our younger patients with COVID-19 and the absence of significant comorbidities. John, I know you're doing some ECMO as well, so I want to give you the opportunity to say a few words and then I think we can roll into Rob and for the final discussion point here on this podcast about any new medication therapies.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. No, Mike, I mean, your experience is very similar to ours. I think we've definitely contracted in terms of trying to recognize that ECMO is a scarce resource and you know trying to avoid running out of ECMO circuits. So we've definitely become a little bit more conservative. We've really kind of pushed the limits to try and put people on at the right time, but not also using after the patient's been intubated for 10 to 14 days. It's kind of lost the window there. Receiving a lot of requests for transfers for evaluation as well. But certainly this is a challenging task. These patients are in for a long hospital stay we're proning our VV ECMO patients as well with the idea that we can provide lung rest and perhaps improve recruitment in the lungs as well as they begin to heal while we're doing pure lung rests on VV ECMO. So lots of complications that we have to be careful about with anticoagulations and a few other things. So this is not a easy task or certainly a win-win This is something we really reserve, as you said, for the sickest of the sick, but we're having some good experience with it. So if it's something that you're considering or your patient's not doing well, just as with the original and a lot of the other VV ECMO trials, it's about timeliness and getting the patient to an ECMO-capable center, and if that means transfer, thinking about it early.
1: So that's great. Nice summary of ECMO and other agents to treat hypoxemia of COVID. Now I want to talk briefly about a few therapeutic agents that you should consider in any of your seriously ill COVID patients. And that's going to start with remdesivir, which is a broad spectrum antiviral. It's been tried in a number of viral illnesses. It was shown to be efficacious in MERS, not so much in Ebola. And there was a trial of this that came out in New England Journal. And it basically showed that use of remdesivir shortens time to recovery in your critically ill patients, in your intubated patients with COVID. There was also a trend toward improvement of mortality. The mortality in the remdesivir arm of the study was 7.1% versus a mortality of 11.9% in the control group. And this barely did not meet statistical significance. If they had recruited probably another couple hundred patients in the study, it would almost assuredly have reached statistical significance. So remdesivir, if you have that available, should be considered in your critically ill patients with COVID. The next therapeutic is convalescent plasma. It's an old therapy. It's been used in a number of other disease processes And with this, you're gonna give a single dose of one to two units of convalescent plasma to patients. And it's really thought to be most effective early on in the course of the disease. And in fact, there are a number of trials that and we're gonna be involved at my site in a number of trials of using this in patients who you're gonna actually send home from the ED with COVID. So convalescent plasma is another therapeutic agent that you should consider especially early on. It's currently primarily through a Mayo Clinic type study, and there'll be a link to that in our handout for that as well. The next consideration in terms of therapeutics for COVID is anticoagulation. And clotting is a major pathophysiologic mechanism in COVID. We're seeing patients that have both macro and microvascular thrombus, and they're having problems like pulmonary infarcts, CVAs, even extremity infarcts like so-called COVID toe. And so what you're going to want to do here, so pretty much any patient that does not have a contraindication should receive anticoagulation. And what we're talking about here is sort of a middling dose of your agents. We primarily use anoxaparin. So you're going to use more than you would for, let's say, DVT prophylaxis and less than you would for full thrombolysis for like PE. And so we're typically using anoxaparin in the 30 to 40 BID range. So again, pretty much any patient that does not have a contraindication to anticoagulation should receive that in COVID. The last thing is very, very new, which is dexamethasone. and. COVID is a hyperinflammatory state and a lot of the pathophys of COVID relates to that. There's the so-called cytokine storm and this dexamethasone, which is again is an old drug, it's a cheap drug, it's been used in a lot of other disease illnesses. There was a recent publication or preprint publication, in other words, not yet peer-reviewed publication that found improved mortality, a reduction of about a third in mortality in ventilated patients with COVID. And we're talking about relatively low dose of dexamethasone with this, talking about six milligrams per day of dexamethasone. So not really high dose, not necessarily something to worry about in terms of side effects And so, although again, this is a pre-print publication and it's not yet peer reviewed, we are starting to use that in our shop and I think it is worth considering. So I want to turn to everybody and kind of give your wrap up messages. I'll go ahead and start. My first message is to not give up on the elderly with COVID, in other words, Certainly, the elderly have a much higher morbidity and mortality rate than younger patients. But we are seeing lots of survivors in the 80 to 90-year-old and even 100-year-old range. I've had two patients. I had a 101-year-old Honduran woman who came to the ICU with COVID, was peri-intubation, and she did fine. She's back to her formerly cantankerous self. And she did great and also had a 92-year-old who we got off the vent with COVID, also did well. So don't give up on the elderly. There is obviously more mortality, but don't give up on them. And then my second final message is to really get help. You know, there's a lot of info out there. There's almost too much info. And so I've been relying on my podcast colleagues. They receive a text from me about every week or so asking them what they think about this management question in COVID. And so, you know, you really should reach out to a colleague and to us to help you in management of these patients. So that's what I think. How about you, Mike?
3: Well, you couldn't have said it better, really, to wrap things up here, Rob. Certainly, we have come a long way in a very short period of time in our management and our treatment. I think back to one of the first episodes we recorded as the pandemic was unfolding across the US and the impetus to intubate people and how we've evolved over the last 100 days or so that we've been fighting it and our thoughts on how we've returned to more non-invasive ventilation and perhaps not the knee-jerk reflex to intubate patients. A little bit smarter in intubating and ventilating patients the use of alternative or additional therapies, like you just went through the COVID ICU cocktail. We've certainly gotten a lot of literature out there. It's almost drinking from a fire hose in terms of the literature, but I think we've gotten to a better place as it stands this point. And really crowdsourcing, using all of us, our collective wisdom, our collective experience has gotten us this far. And we said it at the beginning that we continue to remain in this all together as healthcare providers, regardless of our setting. And if we continue to keep that mindset, we will push forward and continue and conquer this condition. Great points. How about you, John?
2: Yeah, no, I definitely learned a lot. It's been a a little bit of a marathon. You know, I think one of the things I've become more comfortable with over the past few months is, at least in the ICU, I've become more comfortable allowing patients to stay on non-invasive respiratory therapies for longer periods of time with COVID ARDS. I think once we turn them to invasive mechanical ventilation, again, anecdotal experience is that it does take a long time for them to be liberated from the ventilator. And we've skated a few people by with non-invasive who I didn't think that was going to happen. So certainly I'm keeping my spidey senses up and really doing constant reassessment of these patients who I'm allowing to maybe go into levels of oxygen administration that I wouldn't have done in the past. So I I become a little more comfortable with that, but really just focusing on paying attention to them. Are they becoming more tachycardic? Is their work of breathing increasing? Or are they comfortable on 80, 90% on their high flow nasal cannula? that's the case, maybe I can let it go. And, you know, with time, and this isn't a recovery in a day, a larger number of these patients than what I suspected have gone on not to require to be intubated. So requires a lot of attention and a lot of time, but again, this is just because we're learning a lot and maybe deviating from our usual practices just a little bit as we learn more about this disease.
1: Love those comments. How about you, Peter?
2: So just
0: two points. The first one is very similar to John's in regards to non-invasive. In our shop, we tend to liberate people more frequently from invasive mechanical ventilation to non-invasive in the COVID setting and have had some success with that. And then lastly, it's just a push for compassionate care. And by that, I mean, you know, We're not having family members in the room for COVID-positive patients. At our shop, they're allowed to visit through the glass. But utilizing things such as Zoom and FaceTime so that family members can see their loved ones and just get a glimpse of that is vitally important. And that represents what's special about medicine and the things that we can do to help ease the suffering. And so I would just ask you to consider doing that, making sure you have good contacts for family, for these patients who are intubated, paralyzed, and can't communicate.
1: That's a wonderful suggestion. We're utilizing Zoom quite a bit as well. And yeah, it's been very, very helpful.
3: Well, Rob, that was an outstanding job leading us through this update as we sit here on Thursday, June 25th, 2020, and record this. So all of that information is up to date. Through today, That was just simply a great discussion, gentlemen, on this very complex and continuing to evolve condition. So my thanks to all of you. We're going to bring this podcast to a close, so we can't thank you enough for listening to us. And we so look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.